Houseman HQ Podcast, episode 18. This, this, this is the House Flipping HQ Podcast. Giving you the strategies, techniques, and inside secrets of house flipping from today's top house flipping experts. House Flipping HQ. Your ultimate house flipping resource for intelligent real estate investing and financial freedom. Now, let's get flipping with your host, Justin Williams. Hey, hey, what's going on, House Flipping Nation? Um, I just got back yesterday from Utah and Idaho from the, the last minute trip I had to make. As many of you know, my my grandmother passed away last week and we had her funeral uh, this weekend and, you know, it was, it was a beautiful thing. Uh, she's in a better place and it was great seeing uh, my friends and family and spending time with them and ringing in the new year with them. So we just had a great time. I'm finally getting over this cold. So that's a good thing as well. Um, Thank you so much for your love and support. Though I've gotten a lot of emails and messages about that, and uh, that just that just really means a lot to me. So, moving on to our guest for today, I'm super excited to have Rick on the show today. Uh, Rick Solis has been investing since 1988. I'll let him kind of get into his story a little bit. He started off a little. Uh, a little slower back then, and, and recently he's been doing a lot more over the past several years. Rick is, I like to refer to him as the main appraiser for the Norris Group. I asked him about that, and you know, he's like, oh, I'm an appraiser for the Norris Group. He's a, he's a humble guy, but um, in Southern California, when you hear Rick Solis, you think of the appraiser for the Norris Group, which those of you who don't know who the Norris Group is, you know, Bruce Norris is kind of like the, the godfather of real estate in Southern California, um, you know, predicts the markets. Uh, you should definitely check them out and check him out if you have not. So what I love about Rick is he is both an investor and an appraiser. And not only an appraiser, but he, the main appraisals that he does is for other investors. So he has had his hands in and looked at so many transactions as the king of, of evaluating properties. Um, you know, just a couple numbers here. He's done about 200 transactions of his own as far as buying, you know, purchasing and selling properties, 250 loans, which he's done. And then as far as appraisals go, you know, Rick, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said you've done about 12,000 appraisals. <laughs> and yeah, it's averaging about 500 a year. That's in incredible. And like I said, most of those are for house So he has a wealth of knowledge. A couple, a few months ago, Rick and I had the opportunity to speak together um, at a, an investment club at Joe Lahore's, you know, put this in the show notes. Joe Lahore has a great investment club in Orange County. What's it called? Because of the, the Orange County Investment Club? Yeah, you know, I couldn't help you with that. I think that's what it is, but I'm bad with names and my memory's not the best either. And <laughs> what, well, I'm just kind of laughing because Rick and I, you can tell we have some similarities in that area. <laughs> Neither one of us remember exactly what the name of the club is, but. What I loved was once I heard I was speaking speaking with Rick, I knew I didn't have to dress dress fancy. <laughs> no, I mean that as a compliment. I mean that as a compliment. I mean, I was pretty sure Rick would be wearing shorts and sandals, and sure enough, uh, I think that's what you were wearing, right? Or I think I stepped it up and I had a pair of shoes on, tennis shoes, and a button-up the front shirt. And that's as dressed up as I get. You did wear a button-up shirt. Usually I see you're in t-shirts and sandals. And, um, you know, it just kind of goes to show the the genuineness. Is that a word? Genuinity? Genuineness? I don't know that word. But <laughs> just just goes to show how genuine Rick is. He's not out there to show off or prove anything. And anyone I talk to about Rick, they feel the same way. He was just a genuine guy, knows his stuff. One of the smartest people I know doesn't have anything he's trying to prove to anybody, just doing his thing. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I give to you Rick Solis. How's it going, Rick? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, you bet. Happy to have you. So, let's start off before we dive into the killer content we're going to be discussing today. Um, Give us a little more about your background. Let's hear a little more about you so the audience can connect with you a little more. Well, I started 
I bought my first house in 1988. I was 20 at the time. And the way I got started was uh, back then, they used to do a lot of infomercials on TV, a lot of late night stuff. And um, I bought one of those seminars from a guy named uh, Dave Del Dotto. And he was the guy that was in Hawaii and he was hanging out with all these beautiful women. And he was showing you the real estate, you know, how to buy and sell real estate. So I bought his thing for a few hundred bucks, but which was a lot of money back then. You know, most people made, you know, 20 year olds were making five bucks an hour. So to spend $300 on a course was, you know, a couple of weeks worth of salary. But I bought that and I followed the course. I ended up buying a house in 1988. Then after that, I bought, you know, about a dozen more. That dozen more that I bought were mostly purchased in 1989, which, I mean, if you've been in the business long enough, you know, that was probably the worst year to be buying rental houses. And, um, you know, I was 20, so I didn't have any money. So these houses were all no money down. And that's kind of what they taught you back then. Just buy anything you can get. And as long as the rent covered the mortgage payment, you were golden. So I was loading. And, you know, the houses you can buy for no money down in Southern California back then were bad houses that nobody else wanted. So I ended up with a lot of, you know, ghetto slum houses in the worst parts of San Bernardino that you would only rent to Section 8 tenants with bad credit. And I mean, these were just experienced tenants that just didn't take care of business and wouldn't pay rent. And I mean, it, it was an awful learning experience. But man, I came away from that knowing quite a bit. I got out of most of those, you know, by 92, 93, when the market was just plummeting. I got out of most of those, except for one. I held on to one and I kept that thing all through the all the 90s. Um, and at the same time, I was having trouble figuring out what these houses were worth. And I didn't realize that until I was on like house number 12 or so. So I took some appraisal classes at the community college and then I just decided to become an appraiser. So I was an appraiser while I was investing. And, uh, man, I didn't, I never thought that I would still be doing appraisals 24 years later, but I'm still doing it. You know, it's the only, only job I found that, you know, makes really good money and I can wear flip flops and shorts and you know, keep my own schedule. Well, it's kind of like you're keeping, educating yourself on your own business because your business is the market, right? Yes. And you're able to earn an income from that. That's sounds like a pretty good uh, win-win situation to me. And I've always considered myself more of an investor than a flipper. And in my mind, an investor, when I'm flipping and I do some flipping, but when I'm flipping, I'm doing that just for income and I'm taking the income just to pay to this month's bills. And when I think of myself as an investor, I'm trying to take all the profit on out of that sale and move it forward to something else that's going to provide cash flow. I'm trying to hold all of that without losing any of it to taxes, especially short-term taxes, or just me spending it on a car or, you know, a vacation or something like that. So I'm always trying to make an income somewhere else to cover my bills and then on my investing side of my, you know, what I spend my time investing on, I'm trying to keep that and grow that to a large enough um, nest egg that I can just live off that. Love it. Love it. Um, yeah. So I kind of talked to Rick about, about this ahead of time. You know, Rick does, he does some flips and he does some wholesaling and he does what I call long-term flips. But the most part, he is, his goal is the cash flow. His goal, um, he, he has a lot of rentals. How many rentals do you have, Rick? You know, I'm, I don't keep like the number in my head. Let me see. I think with the one I just bought last month, we're at 53. And then I've got a couple loans I'm foreclosing on that I'll probably get those houses back. So I'll probably be, you know, 56 within the next like three or four months. Yeah, that's fantastic. So even though our focus here on house flipping HQ is, you know, creating a robust house flipping business. Uh, I wanted to bring someone like Rick on because, you know, even I have a handful of rentals and it's just, there's a crossover. Even if you're a house flipper and you have a house flipping business, you're going to have to, at one point or another, deal with tenants, or maybe you want to have a few tenants or a few rentals that can kind of help, help offset some of the income. Um, and it just made a lot of sense for me to bring Rick on because there's so much crossover in what he does and what we do as, as house flippers. So, okay, great, Rick. What, let's see what else. So, we talked a little bit about your background. Tell me a little more about where you're at right now in your business. You know, I'm really market time. Market timing for me is a lot. Timing from Bruce. So 
the transactions, the properties that I plan on kind of flipping in, I'm planning on selling starting this year, next year, and the following year. I acquired most of those in 2010 when I saw prices were you know plunging. You know, I jumped in with both feet. So the houses I'm selling now are based on that. And the things I was doing to acquire houses back then really don't work now. Most of the investors I see that are buying stuff now, and, and that is the beauty of being the appraiser for the Norris Group, I, I can see how every transaction is put together. And it seems like the bulk of them are you know, from the mailers to non-owner-occupied people, non-owner-occupied owners. So um, I usually will, you know, someone will call me up, hey, you know, can you run some comps for me? I'm thinking about doing this deal through the Norris Group. Um, but I might just be flipping this thing to another investor. Well, I'm the first guy in line because I had that conversation. So I am buying yeah, probably one house every month or two from somebody that's going to wholesale something. I'll send them over the comps. I'll tell them this is what I think. And then they'll, I think they'll talk to Craig to figure out what they're going to loan. And then I'll just send them, oh, by the way, I know you've got a list of uh, sellers on this stuff or buyers that'll buy it from you. But if I was going to buy it, this is what I would pay. And I just give my number and I don't really push them hard. I, I don't really need the deal and it's not going to break me if I take it or leave it. So I send them the number and, you know, I still end up buying a house every month or two during that, doing that way. Or I go to the real estate clubs and, um, you know, I'll speak at the real estate clubs and I'll usually pick up a wholesaler now and then through that. Um, that's how I'm getting most of my deals. I have done extensive mailers, like huge mailing campaigns all through from 2001 through 2007. And, and that's just not something I want to do at this point. I do realize that those guys are getting much better deals than me. I mean, the last guy that flipped me a house last month, he paid 81000 for it and I paid 101. So, I mean, he made 20 grand off a of mailer, but I've done the mailers and, you know, I've spent five grand on mailers before and bought nothing. And it's just, you know, it's a lot of time and work and it's just not where I'm at at this point. I'm not as hungry and motivated as I was a decade ago. Yeah, for sure. So you're in a different situation in life. And I think it's important that people recognize that. I mean, you're, you know, you're currently doing appraisals on the side. And that's kind of how you get a lot of your deals as well, it sounds like. But that's bringing in an income. And you're able to pick up some deals here and there. And you're, I, I, from what I know from you, you're a pretty relaxed guy, which, which is good. I mean, you're not, you don't seem super high strung. <laughs> and you know that's yeah well you know i focus a, a big part on the taxes so i mean that's another reason i'm not a flipper i've noticed you know i usually partner up with another investor on these things if we make 20 grand profit on a deal 10,000 each and then you know we're paying short term taxes i mean that almost takes 40% of the deal out so i'm ending up with 6 grand and for me 6 grand is just too low of a number to be doing you know, taking on the time and risk and putting up the money to deal with that, you know, selling a house. So I really don't do a lot of short-term stuff. Mm -hmm. It's all long-term for me. Now, you noticed though, I, mean, I heard you say that you're going to start to sell some of your properties. So is your plan, you know, I talked to different investors and some of them, they're not going to sell no matter what. Are you one of those guys who won't sell no matter what? Or do you try to sell at the peak, buy low, sell high? Uh, no, I hate rental houses. And uh, there's, I'm never, I'm not the, I'm never selling no matter what. That, no, that's not my plan at all. I don't want to be in my 50s with a tenant calling me. You know, I got a tenant call yesterday. Hey, my heater's broken. I don't want that call, you know, five years from now. So my plan was um, not to sell at the peak, but sell as, uh, as we get to a certain point profit you know if i can walk out with you know instead of making twenty thousand dollars profit on a house that house i was mentioning to you if i can get to a hundred that's you know when i start exiting and so houses that i bought in 2009 i'm going to start selling this year so me and my partner a uh, business partner are going to start selling like the problem 20 percent of our portfolio and it seems like 20 percent of our rentals provide 60% of the hassle. So the tenants are moving more frequently or we just get bad, we have bad tenants in there or the repair, a lot of repair calls. So by eliminating that 20%, I mean, half or more of our problems are going to go away. So, and that's pretty common with rentals. I mean, sometimes you get, you know, a good one and you don't hear from anybody for three years. They just mail you check month in and month out. And then other ones you get a call like every two weeks. And then those are the guys we're just getting rid of. So, you know, I refer to that as, so you are in a way flipping, it's a long-term is what I. Yeah. 
I am a long-term flipper. I'm not committed to, um, to residential real estate ownership. That's not, you know, that's not, I only like that if property values are going up. Yeah. I've been through two downturns now and I can tell you being a landlord when market values are, are declining is just miserable. That is not something you want to do. There's not really any, any point of it in my opinion, um, which is no. one reason, that's the only reason I even have rentals right now is because I, you know, from what, you know, Bruce and predicting the market's going to go, okay, I bought 10 rentals. <laughs> it's the way to go. I mean, when, when I was flipping a lot of houses in 2001 and we make, I realized kind of about maybe 50 transactions in, well, there's some that came with tenants. And if we could just keep that tenant in there paying for like nine months before I did that rehab, then get them out, rehab it and sell it and close it on day number 366. Well, my tax bill got cut in half. And instead of getting 30 grand for that house, I ended up with 60 or 70 grand. And it's not easy to find deals. So if I did that, I'd only have to do half as many deals or even less than half, maybe a third as many and make the same income as people that were buying and fixing them and selling them constantly. So that's kind of the mode I've gone with. And with the batch that I bought in 2010, I almost got to the point where you know, I thought, you know, I'm buying these houses for 75 grand. As soon as they get to 200 grand, that's when I'm going to start cashing out. And, um, you know, a lot of those are getting to that point starting this year. So they're not quite to 200 grand. Maybe they're at like 160, but I'd like to kind of dollar or kind of average out my exit point. And by selling those, I can clean up a lot of yeah. financing problems on the other 80%. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about. I know, you know, you mentioned, you know, taxes, I know that that ends up being 35, 40% on flips. And that's just because you're taxed as ordinary income. Now, neither one of us, for the record, are accountants or tax experts. But absolutely. um, I'm just going off experience. If I'm making an income and and as a side job, I rehab and sell a house and I'm out in three or four months, about, you know, 35 to 40% of that goes away to the tax man. Yep. If I've held that house for a year and a day, it's 24%. 24%. Much rather give away 40 or, you know, 25, a fourth of the deal instead of, you know, 40% of the deal. Yeah. And if it's two years and it's even, it's like, what, 15% or am I? No, no. it's still the same. So it's 15% feds and 9% state. It's always 24. Although they do fluctuate on the, you know, both of them change that number from time to time. But also, if I can go a year and a day, I can 1031 exchange into something else that will, you know, potentially deliver a very large payday, you know, a few years down the road. And I'm, I'm all about, I'm trying to build my wealth and not necessarily my, you know, just my income for right now. Yeah. I'm not looking for the big payday right now. I'm looking for the huge payday three or four years from now. Down the road. Now, you kind of, you talked about, the properties that you'd get and they already have a, a tenant in them. That's kind of a similar thing that I would do earlier this year. And part of last year's as uh, accumulating a few rentals was if we got a property and already had a tenant and they were a good paying tenant, Hey, let's just keep them in there. Right. Why, you know, why not? And then that's kind of how I focused on that as well. So it's interesting hearing you say that. Um, oh, that's, that's the best. I learned that last go around. And the other thing is if by having a tenant in there, you can time when you're going to sell the house. So, if I'm buying a house in October and then I'm going to rehab it and put that thing on the market November 1st, I hate selling a house between like Halloween and Valentine's Day. It's just not for me. I would much rather be selling a house when people have their tax refund, you know. So I like to sell from March to like, you know, September. So with a tenant in there, if I can keep them in and kind of time it so I'm selling during the optimal uh, buying season, that's where I want to be. Yeah, that's awesome. You can time it. So one of the things that I would not recommend, though, and tell me if you would agree, I just want to make sure people on the call are, are understanding, I would not get a house, fix it up, put a tenant in there with the intention of keeping them in there for only nine months, and then, you know, telling them, okay, thanks for coming, and <laughs> and then selling the house, because then you're dealing with a whole other rehab, and there goes yeah. a big chunk of the profit that you... Uh, you know, you thought you were saving money in taxes, but you're rehabbing the house again. Have you ever had a tenant yeah, where you didn't have to do I anything? I wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there has been times where, I mean, you'd almost be better off if it's a low end house, just let that thing sit empty because you are paying for two rehabs and you're paying for the drama of telling that tenant, you know, nine months in, hey, you got to move again. 
tenants hate to move. Yeah. So if you're making a move nine months in, they're going to be pissed off and they're probably going to take that out on either your house or your rent payments on the way out. So, you know, that's not going to work out well. Okay. So, okay. Once again, the, the platform is house flipping, but occasionally just like you, I have a tenant to deal with, whether either I'm going to have to give them cash for keys or evict them, or maybe I'm going to keep them as a, you know, for one or two years on a long-term flip, which, which I call it. So let's do like a little synopsis on, I know it could be a whole course in and of itself, but what do you look for? You get a house that is occupied. How do you deal with that situation? Number one, if you want to keep the person there, or number two, if you need to get rid of that person, what, how would you go about that? When I get a house that's occupied, uh, in fact, I just got one. We got one in Bloomington, and the house is just a, a mess. It's nasty. And I went and saw it beforehand, and the guy is paying 700 a month for a house that probably should rent for 1200 a month, but he's doing all the maintenance. So I immediately sent that guy, as soon as we closed escrow, I, I sent the guy a letter, and I said, look, you know, you've been there for a while. Um, I can offer you one of three things. And he was kind of a slow-moving tenant. He didn't pay very well. So I said, the first deal is I can offer you three grand to be out within two weeks, and I will just meet you at the property, hand you $3,000 cashier's check, and you know, we'll just go our separate ways. The second thing is I can just keep renting to you from for $700 a month, and you know, if that works out and you're willing to take care of the property maintenance, you know, we can keep that going. The third thing is. Um, you can do nothing. You could throw this letter in the trash and the eviction will start in a week because a lot of times they will do nothing when they get your letter. So you got to let them know that you're going to do something. And literally, you know, within a week or two, you have to have that three day notice on the door because a lot of times the landlords that are selling these properties have had problems with these tenants and the tenants are used to just doing nothing and getting a free ride. So, I mean, you got to kind of let them know that you mean business, but I also, I offer enough money that it's a a big incentive for them to move. And the reason I offer this guy three grand and actually my number is usually closer to five grand, but he was only paying 700 a month, depending on what the reason I offer that much money is because it usually costs me two or three grand to haul away all the junk they leave at the property. So you get that money, they have to take all their stuff and evictions are running about a grand right now. So I'm going to best case scenario, spend two grand hauling off their junk a thousand bucks on eviction and lose two or three months of rent, or I could just hand them, you know, three or four or $5,000 and they leave happy. I would much rather just save the drama, write them the check and get them out. Most people will not offer that kind of money. Their cash for keys thing is like a thousand bucks. And I kind of look at it from the tenant's perspective. I'm sitting in my house, I'm staying there for free and the same house is going to cost you 1200 bucks a month to rent. You're offering me a thousand bucks. Yeah, I'm not going to work with you. So, I mean, you have to make the number big enough to make them want to move. And we do the same thing. We'll focus on cash for keys versus trying to deal with an eviction. And people- Evictions are nasty. And, I mean, if they get an attorney involved or do a BK, I mean, it, it, yeah, eviction can drag out for six months and run you a couple grand in legal fees. Yep. And then you got holding costs and money that you're not getting from rent and, and all kinds of things. And the guy, the tenant's just destroying your property on the way out. I mean, because they're pissed off by that point, and they're taking it out on the rich landlord. Yeah, 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 exactly. The, the rich landlord, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just think you're made of money. So, I mean, they don't have any clue that they're paying you seven hundred, and your payment, our payment on this house is probably closer to nine hundred. So every month we're going to lose two hundred bucks on this thing while this guy's sitting in there. Yeah, but he thinks we're going to take his seven hundred, and we're just heading to Vegas. You know, as soon as we get his rent check. That's normal mentality on that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so how do you, let's, okay, cash for keys. You mentioned that first. Now, that, that's the term, of course, that people use when they pay someone to leave. How, if someone says, okay, I'll take your $3,000, uh, how do you go about that transition? Okay, well, I put a time frame on it. So, okay, you get three grand if you're out in 15 days. And most, in fact, all of them will not be out in 15 days. And then I let them know on day 15, we start an eviction and the amount drops by a hundred bucks a day. Okay. But I still want them to know there's an incentive to move out even while I'm in the eviction. So, you know, if they're day, you know, they're 10 days later, so they're on day 25, I might give them a thousand bucks less, but it's still cheaper than 
hauling off all their junk and meeting a marshal at their property and a locksmith. I just, I hate doing that. So yeah. I'll try to avoid that at all costs if I can. So I will hand them money all the way to the end. I'll even promise them that, hey, you know, I'll give you a great reference to your next landlord. Yeah. You know, if you, if you know, and in addition to the cash for keys, if I'm evicting them, I'll never give them a great reference though, the next landlord. I'll just promise them anything to get them out the door if we got, if we're at eviction stage. I mean, at that point, you got to do whatever you can just to get possession. So if you do, if they agree to cash for keys, do you have an agreement, like a cash for keys agreement that you use? Oh, yeah. I end up, I go there with a very simple agreement, something I just write on, you know, I go on board and it's just basically, hey, you know, the, here's property address, here's the date, you're going to be up by this day, I'm going to pay you this much, you're going to leave the property free of any trash, debris, personal property, vehicles, and the, the house and the yard will be clean. And if you're not out, you know, I, I spell out the terms. It's very basic. All, all my contracts are like that. Very basic stuff I can type up myself in 10 minutes. And it's it just really easy for them to understand and really easy if I go to court for a judge to see that I'm not trying to pull a fast one. I don't have like a 30-page document. You know, I'm trying to pull the wool over their eyes. I'm, I'm offering a fair deal. And I really am. I'm trying to give them a fair deal to just get out of the house and give me the house back. So you, you signed the agreement right away. and then you give them the money once they are out. The day they're out, everything's out. They give you the keys. You give them the check. Yeah, I give them the check. I don't give them a penny beforehand. Uh, they a lot of them will tell you, "Hey, I need some moving money." Yep. And I'll usually point out, "Well, yeah, I'm paid rent in three or four months. Why don't you use that rent you exactly. save, you know, to get the truck or whatever?" But I mean, if I have to, I might put a deposit down for a rental truck, but and that doesn't happen very often. I usually tell them that it's never my property. I'm always the guy working for the owner okay. and I'm always fighting on their behalf. And I'll tell them, I'll try to get that done, but it, it's yeah. probably not going to happen. Take, take their side. I like that because then you yeah. become, you know, you guys are together instead of bumping heads. Yeah. I'm always their friend. And I, and yeah, you see the way I dress and, and I drive an old pickup <laughs> truck. And I'm not out to impress anybody. I don't care. Yes. So I literally, I've read that millionaire book next door and, and that's, me i keep a low profile and you would have no clue that i'm doing yes, well so you do. <laughs> they think i literally could live right next door to them and they wouldn't even i'd fit right in that's awesome um okay great so we talked about the cash for keys and then you said they can keep renting from you so that's one option if they were to keep renting from you do you redrop an agreement um yeah get a new, new rental agreement a new rental agreement but I also um, try to set things up so that I don't want them thinking that as soon as I um, take possession or I'm the new owner, they're going to call me up with a laundry list of repairs. Yeah. So I let them know that, hey, I will fix all these things. But instead of paying 700 bucks a month, you're going to pay market rent, which is yeah. maybe 12 or 13. So you'll be closer. Maybe I'll probably still keep it a little low. Maybe I'll be 11. But I want to make sure that they realize that you know if, if I'm discounting the rent, they're taking care of the maintenance and most of them do most of them are used to fixing everything or just living with the house not repaired but i don't want to do a lot of repairs um, i'll fix the health hazard stuff but i don't want to do a lot of rehabbing that i'm going to have to redo again when yeah, they move out. exactly okay i like that because yeah there's nothing so I, worse i'll even take care of the, the outside i mean i'll do a lot of exterior rehab with them in it but i don't want to do the inside because and i've rehabbed tons of rentals and Six months later, when the tenants are in there, they, they all look kind of like terrible. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's just the terror stuff. I call that a double rehab. There's nothing worse than doing a double rehab like within a year. Yeah. I mean, you could put in a $5,000 kitchen and a year later, you know, the stove and the dishwasher look terrible. I mean, yeah. you just don't take care of stuff. Forget about the carpet and paint, man. It's, and, and when someone buys like a brand new retail on a home that, that's fully rehab, they want a new everything, right? They don't want to use yeah. it. So. Um, okay, I like that. So you try not to have to do that rehab, and then you can do it once they move out, and then you can retail the property. So yeah, that's where I am with the the twenty now. I mean, it's, or I'm there four or five years, and I'm going to have to rehab everything. I mean, even appliances that were three or four years old will probably have to be replaced. I mean, they just they don't look good after four years, and nobody has ever cleaned the stove. And you know, sometimes you can bring that back to life, but a lot of times you can't. Yeah, and but you know, if you're making 50, 60, or 100,000 or more, like you said, it's totally worth it to get that, that yeah, retail value. Absolutely. 
Okay, so let, let's talk really quickly. Let's touch on evictions because I know you mentioned that. Um, some people are really afraid of evictions, and maybe they should be a little bit, right? <laughs> but what are yeah. some things that we can make it less scary? Or, or what the eviction process is? It the same in Cal- other states as California, or is it different depending on where I've you heard are? That California is a lot more difficult than most states. I don't haven't done evictions in other states, but usually, um, I use a company called Fast Eviction out of San Bernardino. There's a bunch of companies just like that. And I literally just call them up, say, hey, here's the tenant. They're not paying rent. Fax over the um, rental agreement. I let them know when the rent was due. And I give them a credit card number. And they go and deliver the three-day notice to the tenant. Put that on the door. They mail it to them. And then uh, three or four days later, they call me to see if the tenant hasn't paid. And if they haven't, then I just give them another credit card number. And boom, they start the eviction. And, and they just they take care of the whole thing. And that's the way I prefer to do it. Um, delivering three-day notices is a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah, that's not some I've done that before, and I don't want to do that anymore. So I'll pay the fifty bucks to have someone else do that. Yeah, I mean, you you let them handle it. You know they're doing it right because um, there are a few things that you have to do right, and if you do it wrong, you've got to start all over, right? I don't even know if they're doing it right, <laughs> but I know that they'll say they were doing it right. So that's, that's <laughs> I don't care. I just don't want to be. Well, I don't want to roll up on that door and that tenant running out. Hey, what are you doing? And you start, you know, this bat and you starting to swing. I don't want to be involved in that. Their chance of doing it right, I guess, is much better than a brand new investor who doesn't know what they're doing, doing it right. Right. I've done that myself before. And I can guarantee you as a brand new investor, you're going to make some mistakes. Yes. That will eliminate your void, your whole eviction. You'll be starting yes, over after a couple months so, and you got to start all over. So, Okay, but look, so, so, okay, what is the process? So you got a three-day notice, or you put like, a, is it 30 or 60-day notice? To, see, Vanessa and Fast Evictions handle all my evictions. We've done plenty of uh, cash for keys. Usually we don't have to do an eviction, but we've done evictions as well. And I don't even know much about the process because I have other people handle that. I don't either. I know that you, the three-day notice, then they start the eviction, and with, if the tenant doesn't answer, about 30 to 45 days later, you get your property back. Most of the time when you do an eviction now, the tenant's, answer i'd say almost a hundred percent of ours attendants answer and when they answer they're responding to your eviction and now you have a court date which means for the landlord you're going to be spending a few hundred dollars more to have an attorney meet you at court you go to court the tenants rarely show up yeah um but they do that they respond because it buys them another you know two to four weeks so um you go to court and you know again that's a very uncomfortable situation you have to wear pants and i hate that you have to wear pants to court you have to sit there it's going to take 3 or 4 hours and you're dealing with an attorney and it's just it's not fun but um you always the landlord always wins because they really have no excuse for not paying the rent i mean they always go in there and say the property's in really bad shape but you know they're not fixing the property and deducting that from the rent they're just not paying the rent so. yeah I mean, I think that's 100% of tenants' uh, excuses for not paying the rent is the house is in bad shape. Yeah. So, and I think the judges have heard that over the years. So, um, But normally, you're going to go to court and tenants not going to show up. And if they do show up, they're going to lose almost 100% of the time. Okay. So let's, If your attorney did all the paperwork correctly. Let's talk about the lockout. Let's say you get to the point of the lockout. You mentioned meeting the marshal at the property. How does that work? Is that some For some people, that sounds really scary or... <laughs> That is, that is not fun. <laughs> I would recommend not doing that if you can avoid it. And I think you can pay a fast eviction a couple hundred bucks and they will go there and sit at the property and wait for the marshal and they will meet your locksmith and they will handle all that for you. It's the best $200 you can spend. But if you go on your own, the marshal will usually tell you, okay, the lockout is going to be between like 8 and 10 a.m. And we'll be at the property. And what you want to do is you want to get there a few minutes before the deadline because if you get there at 8.05 and the marshal got there at 7.55, he's going to sit around for about five minutes and then he's taken off. And if you do that, then you wait a few more weeks for the next lockout. And I think you even have to pay another fee. So it, you just you don't want to miss that lockout appointment. But if you do, you're there on time. The marshal shows up. The marshal goes in and literally knocks on the door and physically removes the people, puts them on the street. And you're there with your locksmith and you just change the lock. What I normally do is if you get to that point, I would say half the tenants are just like, I'll deal with it tomorrow type people. And they're just totally inside the house eating breakfast. 
they're not prepared at all for the lockout. They wow. think it's not going to happen. So wow. if I get that situation, I will usually work out a deal with the marshal that, hey, you know, you can have four hours to get every item you've got inside the house and put it on the driveway, and then we'll do the lockout because I don't want to be responsible for their stuff, and I don't want to have to move it or store it. So we'll do that sort of situation. It is a little dangerous, though, because they could not move out, and, and the marshal might not come back, and you might have the same problem, but I haven't had that problem before. Usually they will get all their stuff out, but it's a bad day. If you're a landlord and you don't like drama, yeah, it's a bad day. If you enjoy drama, then you're going to have a great time. <laughs> and a certain segment of people love that. I mean, they enjoy the whole thing. It's a great story for them. And they consider great entertainment. For me, it's kind of uncomfortable. I try to avoid it. Yeah, and that's kind of a long, the whole House Wing HQ philosophy is, you know, creating a business. And in my personal opinion, if you're creating this business and you're out spending your day doing lockouts and stuff like that, and that's a waste of your time, really. Oh, so. you can you can pay people to handle all that stuff for you. Your handyman can literally be there, and your handyman can be your locksmith, so he can meet the marshal, and I mean, they can handle all that stuff for you. And and I usually, in fact, I will always pay someone to deal with that because for me, it's unpleasant. But if you're the handyman. If I was a handyman, I was getting paid to, that. That would be fun for me. I'd be <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> somebody else's problem and i get to see it take place and sometimes there's some drama between those marshals and the uh, tenants wow. and it's, it's kind of fun to watch if you're not the owner <laughs> and especially someone who's you know taking advantage of you for months and not paid their rent and yeah i mean yeah, as the owner you're pissed off as the handyman you you just don't care you know it's not your problem you're just whatever you just give me my money and i'll change the locks and i'll watch the show so for the record for everyone listening i mean We've done so many houses where we've had occupants when we bought the house. And we very rarely have to do an eviction. When we do, it very rarely gets to that point. But we have had probably about five to ten lockouts. And I've never gone to one. So I don't I don't even really know what happens. Just gets taken care of. So you don't have to deal with all that stuff. I just want people to know about it. I would say over the last ten years, I've probably had a hundred situations where the house came with a tenant. And of those, maybe 10 of those, I couldn't get the tenant to take either rent or cash for keys. And, and, you know, so that was 10 evictions and maybe two or three lockouts. I mean, it's pretty rare. And that's all worst case scenario. And if if I know this is going to be, if I get a a sense that this is going to just be a nightmare, I will um, usually flip that to another wholesaler and let them know, hey, this is going to be a A nasty eviction. I just don't want to deal with this give me five grand and the deal's yours. And I do that a lot too. If once I close the deal and I realize I made a mistake, I will wholesale that to somebody else that's more equipped and enjoys dealing or is willing to deal. I don't like the lockout. So if I know it's going that route, I'll flip that to somebody else. Yeah. You can, you can call me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's guys that, you know, they've got a system and, you know, usually if it's something where I can't work something out with the tenant, or if I know that the city's going to be involved, you know, or I'm going to have to get permits on some rehab, then that's stuff I usually wholesale because I, I don't enjoy the permits or the city on my back or the lockouts. Yeah, and it, I it's rare. It's maybe one out of 20. So, something that you said that I want to make mention to people, it sounds like you, and I know the kind of person you are, so it sounds like you would tell them the situation. I explain everything because, and I, I put, I'm upfront about everything because yeah. once I'm, once we consummate the deal, I never want to hear about it again. Yeah. So you know yeah. every single bad situation that's going to come up. Um, like an example, I've just bought a house on 9th Street in Bloomington, and the tenant told me that the septic tank was bad. 99% of people wouldn't, or buyers wouldn't realize that, hey, there's a four or $5,000 septic tank problem on this house, and they wouldn't realize that until they spoke with the tenant. I knew it going in. The guy that wholesaled the house kind of let me know too. And if I sold it, I would have mentioned that as well. Uh, some people that wholesale stuff wouldn't have mentioned that though. And you get a four or five thousand dollar shock on a you know hundred seventy thousand dollar house. That's a you know. I want a word to the wise. A lot of wholesalers can be unscrupulous. So if you don't have a relationship <laughs> with them and they are wholesaling you a property, there may it may be for a reason. So. You want to just make sure that you know you do your own. You do some due diligence. You know what's going on. If you don't know that wholesaler, I always have my assistant Vanessa look into them a little bit more. Look and do and do some really good due diligence on the property. 
really good and and factor in the worst so when i'm buying something i'm always factoring worst case scenario so you know the wholesalers tell me ten thousand dollar rehab that number is usually half of what it normally is so i'm factoring in double that you know and then if it's an area where it's septic tanks i'm always factoring in okay septic tanks probably bad you know factoring that in and then if it's older house and i notice air conditioner heater are bad or old up on the roof, you know, you factor that in, and it's again another four or five thousand dollar hit. And you're dealing with a hundred eighty thousand dollar house, and then you get an air conditioner, a heater up on the roof that needs to replace, and a bad septic tank. That could be close to ten grand. And yeah. If your profit was going to be fifteen grand on that go. deal, yep. And now it's five. I mean, that's just nasty. So I factor in all the worst case scenarios. And then it usually doesn't work out to be worst case scenarios. So I mean, it usually works out better. For for me than I expected, but I want to know what's the worst that can happen. Something that I just love that Rick said at the beginning when I was asking about the eviction process, like, yeah, I don't really know either. So here you got two guys who have done tons of evictions, <laughs> and neither one of us really know a ton about the process. It just, once again, goes to show you don't need to know everything to get started in this business. Don't feel like, I know people who, they'd be out studying evictions, and they've never even made an offer on a house. It's like, look, go make offers on a house, learn how to evaluate deals, and you'll kind of learn as you go, right, Rick? Absolutely. And it's that you can ask other investors about that. I mean, if you go to those real estate club meetings, you, there's lots of investors there, or you can just call, you know, fast eviction and they'll just, they'll put you through the whole thing. And it doesn't even have to be fast eviction. There's dozens of companies like that in California. Some are really good and some are really bad. Um, I would get a reference from another uh, investor on that. It, But I think I've probably had upwards of three to over 300 properties in the last 20 years and literally a thousand tenants. And I've probably done 20 evictions, you know, out of all that time, um, out of the 50, how 53 rentals we have right now, I think we have maybe one eviction going. We do one or two a year. It's not a lot. All right, let's, let's move on. Um, let's actually, I don't know if we're going backwards in order, but you know, Rick is an appraiser. He's evaluated a ton of properties. That's probably what he spends most of his time doing is evaluating properties. Uh, let's talk a little bit about deal evaluation, evaluating properties. Rick, what is something that you look for when you're evaluating properties to purchase for yourself or as an appraiser? I don't know which route do you want to go. I know I'm kind of have a long question there. Well, when I'm doing it as an appraiser, I'm looking more of what it's worth right now. I'm not concerned about what it's going to be worth in the future. So when I'm doing it right now, I'm really focusing on what are the com the properties that are going to be closest to mine in like square footage, your bill, lot size, and condition. So if my house is going to be fully fixed up when I'm selling it, I'm comparing it to other, you know, nicely fixed up homes. And I also want those as close in proximity to my house as possible. So I'm focusing on those and I'm I'm trying to see, you know, where those are selling at. And then I also look at what's pending. So if, say, I've got, um, well, let's let's back up a little bit. Let's say I'm in an area, and when I'm doing my search for comparables, I do like a one-mile search, and I go back like six or seven months. And if I see that, and I go, usually I'm keeping my square footage within 20% of my house that I'm appraising. So let's say a 1,500-square-foot house. I'm looking for comparables, you know, plus or minus 300 square feet. So I'm looking for all the houses that sold within a mile within the last six months from 1,200 to 1,800 square feet. And if I see within six months, there's been 50 sales, you know, I could kind of look at that and go, okay, well, that neighborhood's selling about eight houses a month at that type of home. Now, if I look and I see, and I also look at the pendings on the actives, if I see that there's, say, 24 pending sales, and only six or seven actives, you know, there's less than a month of inventory. And I'm noticing that the pending sales, the all sold relatively quickly. So days on market are like 30 days or less. And a lot of the prices that they were listed for are higher than the closed sales. I can kind of tell that, you know, that market is going up. There's very little inventory and um, there's plenty of sale activity. And, you know, I'm pretty confident about that as an appraiser that, you know, I'm going to probably appraise that towards the upper end of the closed sales. You know, so the closed sales might be selling from like 150 to 200 and my house is going to be in good shape. My value is going to be probably closer to the $200,000 range. Now on the flip side, if I had 
24 closed sales in that same six-month period. So I'm only selling like four months and there's four in escrow and there's like 15 active listings. So that's like a four or five-month uh, inventory level. That would concern me more. And I'm noticing that the listing prices are a little lower than the closed sale prices. That kind of tells me that the market is declining mm -hmm. or there's not as much um, demand for that. And so if that's the situation, I'm probably going to appraise a little lower you know, on the low side or the mid-range. So I'm looking at that. Now, if I'm the buyer and I'm looking at, I'm going to buy this and fix this and sell this, and I'm concerned about where I'm going to get, where I'm going to be two or three months from now, I'm still doing that same search, but I'm looking at, then I'm really focusing on the listing comparables because that's going to be not only my competition when I'm selling, but they're also going to be the closed sales. So, you know, going back to those same sale comps, if they're ranging from 150 to 200 thou, uh, but I notice all the listings for the fixed up homes like mine are at like 190, well, and there's a lot of them, you know, there's like four or five months supply. That kind of tells me that I'm probably going to be selling for less money than that higher end sale. You know, if my house was on the market right now, I'd be going up against, you know, a dozen fixed up, you know, homes just like mine. They're asking 190. My price is going to probably be 190 or lower. So I factor in all of that, you know, I spend a lot more, actually, when I'm buying it, I spend a lot more time focusing on those things than when I'm the appraiser. In an appraiser, I can, you know, blow through those comps in like 30, 45 minutes, pick the best ones and move on. Yeah. Um, but when I'm actually going to do a retail deal, I spend a lot more time focusing on stuff. Yeah, that's that's some wow, that's some great feedback. I just well, because I'm trying to fact figure out where I'm going to be three months down the road. Yeah, and I, I think so many investors overlook everything you're saying. They just say, "Hey, what's the value?" You know, they don't try to factor what might happen. That feedback you gave is great. All right, guys. Well, we are going to go ahead and stop there for today. Uh, we will continue the interview with Rick Solis. In episode 19, man, he uh, I really love all the information he's sharing with us. Episode 18 was great. Episode 19 gets even better. We really dive a lot into working with appraisers and how to make sure your appraisals come in at value and how to rebuttal an appraisal if you need to, which, you know, literally that could, I don't want to say double your income, but uh, on a lot of properties, it can because you can take some pretty big haircuts on appraisals. They're, they're a big deal. So Rick is the man to share with, and I've learned how to deal with appraisals through him. So look out for that in episode 19. We also go over creative financing, a bunch of other kinds of financing, talk about self-directed retirement accounts, how you can use your own uh, to create your own, and also how you can help other people set up their own so they can lend you money through them. So a lot of great information there. You can check out all those show notes once again for today at housekeepinghq.com slash episode 18. So a couple quick uh, housekeeping items here. Um, wanted to, I don't recall if I mentioned this yet or not, but I listened to Mark's recordings when he did the outros, intros and outros for me when I was gone. So I'm not sure if I mentioned the money that you guys helped us raise from leaving your ratings and reviews to help some families in need this Christmas time. But this past, you know, this in a 2013 and during Christmas time, uh, but we were able to, we, we did 28 ratings and reviews. So we were able to raise close to $300 to help out these families. And I, mean, I tell you what, to go and see the face of these families in need, I just remember feeling a little anxious before I went, for whatever reason, just thinking about the holidays and thinking about business and things. And we went and delivered these things to these families. And that just all went away. And you, know, you really realize what's really important in life and what the purpose of even getting financial freedom is. Uh, there, there's a greater purpose. And I just want to thank you guys for that. And I know they're extremely grateful, uh, them and the organization, which we we're really able to help. So Thank you so much for that. We'll probably be working with them more in the future. So we'll keep you updated on that. Uh, but just from the bottom of our hearts uh, and theirs, uh, thank you for your help with that. Lastly, wanted to make mention of our House Hoping HQ Mastermind Group, which we'll be launching February 
1st at 2014. So that is approaching rapidly. Uh, if you are interested in getting more details on that, we'll be doing a webinar here in a couple weeks. Go ahead and go to housefippinghq.com slash mastermind. Put in your name and email and we will know that you're interested and we will send you updates and information on that as well as the webinar and details of pricing and any of the other details on how we're going to go about that. I'm, I'm really excited for that. I just think it's, uh, as you know from before, my goal is to bridge the gap between the high-end gurus that will sell you everything, including their mother-in-law, um, for whatever amount of money they can get. Uh, and also between the investment clubs, which I think are phenomenal, but you kind of go and you don't have an exact a guide or mentor or focus group and that accountability. So my goal is to fill that gap and create something that I think is incredibly valuable and needed uh, without having the, you know, scammy guru upsell guys, uh, you know, take advantage of, of everybody. So anyway, that was kind of a ramble there, but that's what I do. So that's okay. So I, th I think you get what I'm saying. Housewimpinghq.com slash mastermind, and we'll get you all the info. Alrighty. Well, once again, I need to cruise. Got to take off here pretty soon. Um, I just got back last night and now I'm heading to a seminar for the next few days. I'm going to New Media Expo, which used to be Blog World. Never did I think, you know, Ryan talked about the marketing seminars he goes to. Never did I think I would be going to a New Media seminar. So <laughs> look at and learning all kinds of fun stuff. So Hope everyone has a fantastic week. Get out there, make some offers, make some things happen. Focus on what is really going to help you improve your business and not the things that aren't going to help you improve your business. And we will see you in a couple days in the next episode with Rick Solis, yeah, Rick Solis in episode 19. Until then, happy house flipping. This has been the House Flipping HQ podcast. Your, your ultimate house flipping resource for intelligent real estate investing and financial freedom. Check out amazing tutorials, blogs, how-tos, and other inspiring podcasts with house flipping experts at houseflippinghq.com. Houseflippinghq.com.